so good to be together today. Romans 12. Hey, will you do this with me this morning? Will you stand? Sorry. Could have done that. I could have been more natural. I want to read to you, with you, from the book of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 16. Before I do that, I, I need to pray. All right, so will you pray with me, and then we'll read this text together. Father, our heart and our goal today is that these words that we believe are inspired by your spirit, that were penned by your servant Paul, that, are, that is, this is more than an ancient text. It's instruction for our lives, and in particular, our lives together. And so, Lord, we want you today, before we do anything else, we simply want to submit to that reality. You are speaking. And so help us to take on the form of a servant and to hear what you would instruct, to hear it as grace and kindness to us, and to walk in obedience in it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to talk to you today about the theme of culture. I know some of you are like, yeah, get them. You know, like the culture. I don't, I'm actually not going to talk about the culture out there. I want to talk about the culture in here. What kind of culture does God want from us as a community? That's the question I want to get after today. Here's a way to think about culture. Pete Scazzaro says this. He says, culture is that imprecise something the invisible presence of personality of a place that can be difficult to describe without actually experiencing it. It is often more readily felt than articulated. And this is the way he kind of sums it up in, in a brief statement. He says, culture is the sum total of the learned patterns of thought and behavior of any given group. The sum total of the thought patterns and behavior of any group. Any, every group has a culture. What kind of culture do we have here? I want you to imagine this with me today, okay? You're going to have to just open up your imagination for just a moment with me, but let's imagine this scenario. Imagine that the church, the, there's a, there's a um, telephone at the front desk of the church. Imagine it rings on a Monday. Imagine it was just this past Monday. And most of the pastors don't work on Monday because they're slackers, but I do. I'm here. 
I'm here. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I am here on Mondays. And so when, when, a, when, a, when somebody calls the front office, it goes to, um, to Lauren, and she forwards it on to, um, to one of us pastors. So imagine somebody calls the front desk, and they're like, hey, I need to speak with one of the pastors. And she's like, okay, well, Eric's here, and he's the only one here. Not the most important. He's just the only one here. And so it gets forwarded to my office, and I pick up the phone, and, um, and it goes like this. The person speaking to me says, hey, hey, this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. I told you, use your imagination, okay? This is the Apostle Paul. Yeah, that one. Uh, author of Romans and various other letters in the New Testament. And he says, hey, I need to let you know I'm, I'm on, my next missionary trip is up to Canada. They need the gospel in Canada. And so I'm heading up through... Um, through the Pacific Northwest, and I'm visiting various churches along the way, and I'm going to be traveling through the Portland area, and in particular, like Oswego, but traveling through your community, and I'm going to stop for a couple weeks to do an audit of your church community. And I'm like, an audit? Well, let me just forward you on to the business office, because I know the books are, are right. And uh, he goes, no, not that kind of audit. He says, I'm, I'm going to be auditing the culture of your community. He says, I'm not so much concerned with um, the financials of your community or even the doctrinal statements of your community. Those are very important to me, but, but this is an audit of your culture. And so I'm just sitting there listening, and he says, Here, here's the deal. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna spend a couple weeks with you, and I'm gonna just be, I'm gonna go to the elder meetings, and I'm gonna go to the staff meetings, and uh, I'm going to go kind of like one-on-one -on -one meetings within the church leaderships. And I'm just going to sit and I'm going to observe what I see. And the criteria for this audit is going to be Romans 12, 9 to 16. He says, that's, that's, what I'm, that's how I'm going to base how you guys are doing on these words. And, he, you know, he says something snarky like, I heard you guys have been in Romans for like eight years. Like, you should have this figured out kind of by now. I know you're studying this text. And, and so that would like, you know, make my anxiety, anxiety form coming up, but that would make my anxiety kind of raise a little bit. He says, I'm just, I'm gonna evaluate you based on that. But then I want you to imagine this. He says, I'm gonna use that same criteria again to just to evaluate your congregation. So, he's, so he says, I'm, I'm gonna need 10 names of people in your church that exemplify everything that I just read. And so here's my question to you. Can I give him your name? I, okay, so let, let me be clear. I'm definitely not off the hook here, okay? I'm not like passing the buck. But, but the other thing that we need to remember is neither are you. You're not off the hook either. What I want to do today in this text is I want to take it seriously. And that's what we do every week here at River West when we open the scriptures. We want to take it seriously. But again, as, I'm, as, I'm, as we're working our way through this text today, I want you to think about that. Can I give him your name? Is what we just read, what we stood and read in humility, with a desire to obey, is that the intention of your life? Or I'll ask it this way, is that the kind of culture that we're building here? Does it look like what we just 
read. Now I realize this. I realize this. Some of you, some of you are like brand new. I know some of you, this may be your first week at the church and you're like, chill out, bro. I don't, I don't have any context for this stuff. I'm just, maybe you're learning about who Jesus is. Maybe this, you're new, not just to our church, maybe you're new to church in general. But let me just ask you this question for you to think about if you're new here. How, how do you evaluate all of this? And by all this, I mean like even this gathering right now. We're all, we're constantly evaluating the places and spaces that we inhabit. In a, in a moment like this, you may be evaluating the band, right? And by the way, didn't the band do phenomenal today? It was really, man, I was so proud of them. But you're thinking about the music and you're thinking things like, man, the, this building is really clean. I think I like that. And it is. And you may be thinking about how safe the children's kind of area is when you checked your kids in. Maybe you may be really excited because of how spirited our youth pastor is, and she is, isn't she? Maybe you're wondering, maybe you're evaluating me right now. <laughs> Certainly you are, and I welcome that. But what if the way we evaluated our culture, our community, whether you've been here for a few weeks, a few years, or I know some of you, a few decades, and I know who you are. What if the way we evaluated our experience of community was based on the text that we just read? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be, isn't that a little bit countercultural to the way we typically evaluate our experiences? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk through this text again. We're gonna think deeply about it. Here's, here's, here's my challenge. I could literally preach 20 sermons on this text, and I'm going to do one, okay, today. But here's what my hope is. My hope today is that this text would not be just something that we read and dissect, but that this text would be something that reads us that this text would be something we receive as a call from God himself. And so I'm gonna invite you to take on that posture as we walk through it today. I wanna think about three different things as we enter into this text. First, I wanna think about vision. What does, I want us to elevate our vision of what, a kind, of, what kind of community God wants. The second thing I wanna talk about is the barriers. What are the barriers to living into what God has called us to? And then third, I want to think about the means. What are the means of grace that we can engage in that will help us to live as this kind of community is described for us by Paul in Romans chapter 12? Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, so we start by elevating our vision of the kind of culture that Jesus wants. We want to change our questions about how things are going or do I like the music or do I like the sermon to questions like what kind of church does Jesus actually want? And it's right here in this text. This is why I told you that I need you to have your Bibles in front of you because I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I'm going to give you just a few moments to look down at your Bibles at verses 9 to 16, and I want you to just read it to yourself, prayerfully, humbly.
Just read over it. Verses 9 to 16. The late author and philosopher Dallas Willard said this about the passage that we're looking at today. He said these words. I wanna, we'll put this on the screen for you. He said this. He says, this is the most adequate biblical description of what the details of what he calls a spiritually transformed social dimension, or to put it in just a phrase, this is the most biblical description of what the church, a church culture should look like. He says this, we should pause to contemplate it. Just think for a moment what it would be like to be a part of a group of disciples in which this list was the conscious shared intention and where it was actually lived out even with some imperfections. Now, there are at least 20 commands in these eight verses. Again, they are not optional. We'll get into that in just a minute. You know what I mean? Like last week we looked at gifts and it's sort of like maybe you have this gift, maybe you don't. These are not options. These are, um, to some degree, these are commands. But they're also not systematic either. This, this list that we just read over and we've read over multiple times, it's not like if you do this, this will happen and then do this. I'll say it this way. This list is closer to a tweet than a term paper. Okay, are you with me? It's kind of Paul is just exploding with this um, with these virtues that he's looking for. This is his dream for the church. And while it's not systematic, while it's not necessarily, you know, do this, do this, do this, and, and then this will all happen, there is a theme that kind of binds everything together in this text. And it's a singular word. And that word is, of course, love. Love is what he's talking about. We have one word in the English for the word love. The Greek language has four. And the word that's used here is the word agape. And the word agape at a basic level is in, um, in, antiquity, in antiquity was meant to describe preference. It's to prefer something. It's to prefer something or someone over yourself. C.S. Lewis described agape love as a selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. A selfless love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. Now, here's something that's very important. I know some of you have been with us in this Roman study um, for a few years. Some of you are brand new to us. Um, but here's something you have to know. Paul has used the word agape a number of times throughout this letter, but he has never used it to describe our love for one another. He has only used it up until this point to describe God's love for us. Here's a little rapid fire look at a few different verses that show that. Romans 5.5 5 says this. It says, God's agape love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Romans 5.8, it says, but God shows his agape love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 8, as Paul works his way through this letter, he begins to say something like this, who shall separate us from the agape love of Christ? And then in verse 39, he has this sort of magnif um, magnification of love by saying this, nothing could ever separate us from the agape love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to this point, Paul has been talking about love, 
but he has been talking in particular about the love that God has shown us. Now, the accumulation of those, three, those four verses that I showed you is what we in the Christian faith call gospel. It's the good news. It's about what God has done for us, what God has given to us, what God has lavished upon us. But Paul is taking a turn here. And he starts talking about love in a different way. He's not just talking about love as something that has been given to us, but something that God seeks to give through us. Are you with me? Paul is now beginning to talk about, based on everything that we've read throughout in Romans, which is basically the reality that none of us could be made right with God apart from the death of Christ. None of us are righteous before God. None of us have earned our way into good favor with God. He has just given his love to us. And the way that we'll know if we have received that love is if that love goes out through us and through our lives. And that's where Paul is taking us to. I wanna talk to you a little bit more about love today because if there's one word that would sum up this whole passage again, 20 commands. I'm not going to go through each one and explain each one, but we, we have to start with love. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the priority of love. If you were here with us last week, we talked about how the church body has many members and how it is vital that every member do his or her part. Truly, if God has given you a gift, then use it. That was, that was, that was what we talked about last week. In fact, uh, I want to say again that we do have the Equip Lunch today. If you want to learn more about spiritual gifts and how to use your gifts in the kingdom of God, after the second service, there's a lunch. We invite you to it. I don't know if you're still invited to it, but, but just show up. The food will multiply. It's going to be fine. But Paul talks a lot about gifts. We, we looked at this last week. Paul talks about gifts like prophecy and service and teaching and generosity and leadership. But isn't it interesting that with where we were last week, Paul, he talks about all these gifts that are in the church. He's like, you need to use your gifts, but then he immediately goes to this sentence that we read today, let love be genuine. And what I wanna point out to you today is the priority of love. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13 for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, read in a similar way as Romans does. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul does the same kind of language. He talks about the body of Christ. He talks about the members of the body. He talks about how when each are working properly, it builds itself up. It's an amazing passage. But what I wanna do is I wanna highlight something. When Paul talks about gifts and about service and about the use of gifts in the church, he always goes to love right after that. Listen to this. In, verse, in chapter 13, verses one to three, Paul says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on, if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain Nothing, And it is from there that he goes into this passage that is famously said at, at, at weddings. He goes, love is patient. Love is kind. 
But where it starts is by Paul beginning to say, it's important that the church is filled with people that are contributing in a variety of ways, but if they don't have love for each other, it does not matter. It's worthless. Our service, our talent, our ministries are worthless. And I, that's not an overstatement. They are, this is Paul's language. If we don't have love for one another, if we do not have a countercultural agape love community, then all of our talents, all of our service, all of our accolades, it's all for nothing. And what Paul continually brings to us is this priority of love in the community. Let's turn back to Romans 12 and look at what Paul is saying to us. We start with the priority of love, but then, and now we're actually in the text that we started with today. But I want to talk to you about the sincerity of love this morning. Would you just look at these first few words in the text? Paul says, let love be genuine. Do any of your translations say sincere? Anybody? few NIVers. It's great. What he's getting at in that word is he's getting at the idea of sincerity, the sincerity of love. It's not enough, it's not enough to be like, I love you, bro, or something like that. It has to be genuine. The Greek word used for genuine or sincerity is the word anupokritos, which is incredibly hard to pronounce, but um, at a basic level, it's where we get our word hypocrite from. And so what Paul is saying in that word is he's saying, let love be non-hypocritical. In the Greek culture, a hypocrite, we, we use that word negatively. And that's, that's also a, a way of using it in the New Testament. But a hypocrite in Greek culture was simply an actor. A hypocrite in, in sort of ancient Greek culture, they didn't have sort of, in theater, they didn't have elaborate sets and costumes and things like that. So an actor would walk on stage, a hypocrite would walk on stage and they would be wearing a mask. And what would be very clear to anybody watching is that this person's playing a part. They may be playing the part pretty well, they may be playing the part not well, but there was this understanding that's, that's a hypocrite over there. And again, not in a negative way, but that's a person who's performing. And in the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament, they took that concept, that idea, and they began to apply it to the way that we talk about our communities. Are our communities a place of sincere love, or is it a form of insincerity and hypocrisy? And so what Paul does in our text here, really right as he starts here, he says, I'm going to prioritize love, but it is essential that that love is sincere. Is your love sincere with the people that you're in community with? Is there a genuineness to it? Is there sincerity in it? And then what he does in the text is he moves from the priority of love to the sincerity of love. And then Paul will describe to us what I want to call the goodness of love. And that's going to help us in a very quick way work our way through this text. Paul in that very first verse again in verse 9 says this. He says, he says, after he says, let love be 
genuine or sincere, he tells us to, can we put that um, verse nine back up? He says this, he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. You ever heard that phrase before? Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Is anybody willing to admit that we're a lot better at the first part than the second part? I would say that's maybe an indictment on our Christian culture largely. When people look into our communities, it's very clear what we don't like. But what do we actually cling to? What do we hold fast to? The word abhor what is evil is an incredibly strong word. It's to hate or to detest something. But the word that he uses that we see there, the the word hold fast, is an equally strong word, and it's worth paying attention to. That word hold fast means to, so some of your um, translations probably say cling or cleave to, but really it gets at this idea of glue, or to bond something. Paul is saying, when you're building a countercultural community of love, yes, we need to hate what is evil, but we need to glue or bond ourselves to what is good. And I can't help but think, as I was thinking about this sermon this week, I was praying a lot, was wrestling a lot with what to say And I think that that was the phrase that stuck to me the most. Clinging to what is good. Holding fast to what is good. I think that all of the next like 16 to 20 commands in this text are all a description of the kind of love that Paul would say is good. So again, we can't dissect each one of them, but I want you to look back at that text, 10 to 16, and I'll read it to you this way. It is good to love one another with brotherly affection. It is good to outdo one another in showing honor. It is good to be fervent in spirit together, and we'll talk about what that means a little bit later. It is good to serve the Lord together. It is good to rejoice in hope together. It is good to be patient with one another. It is good to be constantly praying for one another. It is good to contribute to each other's needs. It is good to bless one another, even when you feel persecuted. It is good to rejoice and weep together. It is good to live in harmony with one another. Of course, it is good to associate with those who are not appreciated by society. Those who are not esteemed in society, Paul says it's good to associate with them. It is good to trust in the wisdom of God. And to sum it up in just a phrase, it is good to love one another like this. This is what Paul is calling us to. What Paul is giving us in this list, again, it's not like a, it's not a step one, step two, step three, it's not systematic like that, but what Paul is doing is he is elevating our vision of what a community of agape love actually looks like. He's elevating our vision for that. And what I wanna ask you what Willard asked us in that quote, what if this was our conscious shared intention? 
What if each person came to a gathering like this and before we started anything, they just sort of read through this. Let love be genuine. It is good to serve the Lord together. How would that change our worship gatherings? How would that change our community group experiences? How would that change our Bible studies? How would that change sort of our one-on-one coffee moments that we have with one another? What if this was the measure? This was the standard. This was what we were shooting for together. What if it was? What we need to talk about, though, is what the barriers are to that. Because when we encounter a list like this from Paul in, in this text, we, it, it feels very idealistic, right? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we did this? But the reality is, is we, we, we feel that because we know this is incredibly hard. Have any of you ever tried to bless someone who persecutes you? I've been, like, like, I read passages like that, and I'm like, I don't know if I've ever done that. Bless those who persecute me. And again, this is talking about people in your community. Because you can be persecuted by people in your community. It seems to Paul that that's actually possible. This is really hard. And there's a lot of barriers. And again, it's a long list. So here, I'll just give you some of the barriers to cultivating the kind of community that Paul calls us to. I'll just list them for you. And you see if they resonate. It comes straight from the text. But here it goes. Hypocrisy. It's a barrier. Compromise. Do we abhor what is evil or do we just go with the flow? How about the pursuit of my own honor? How about spiritual apathy, which is the opposite of zeal, which he calls them to? How about complaining instead of rejoicing? How about hopelessness instead of rejoicing in hope? How about prayerlessness how about selfishness and greed and like hoarding my own stuff? What about lack of empathy? Remember what he tells us to do? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A lack of empathy can kill that kind of culture of love. How about tribalism? You notice how the way he says that? He says, don't be afraid to associate with those whose society has deemed worthless. Or perhaps some of us, we have this sense of, I just need to get my people, my tribe together. And really what we mean is people to think like me and act like me and look like me. And then finally, here's a barrier. How about just being wise in our own sight from that last phrase in the text? These, this collection of of virtues that Paul gives us in the text, I think when we read them, it's, it's important for us to realize there's a corresponding vice to that. And so when we read the text, I think this is part of the reason why, to be perfectly honest, like these aren't always everybody's favorite passages in the Bible, right? Like, give me some stuff about how God loves me. And it's like, who doesn't want to hear that? It's like, I love you, man. But... But God has a desire, and that desire is that his love would change and transform us to such a degree that not only would we be good at receiving it, but we would grow in our ability to give it away. And those are the barriers to it. I invite you to just throughout the week, just read through that and think, 
Is there, am I giving in to one of those barriers? Maybe it's compromise, maybe it's selfishness, maybe it's prayerlessness. And I invite you to just read that with, with, with grace, knowing that God loves you deeply, but this is part of our growth and maturity, our growth in love. There are barriers, but thank the Lord that there are means to grow in this. There, is, there are means that we can take a hold of as a community, not just as individuals, but I wanna talk about the means of grace that God has given us so that we can cultivate an agape culture. And again, this is impossible to do without the grace of God. This is impossible to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth is, is that the list that we looked at today in, 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 in Romans 12, this is, this is basically a perfect description of the life of Jesus, who was sincere in his love, who showed honor to people who weren't honorable, who blessed those who persecuted him, took his enemies and turned them into his family. We're looking to Jesus in all of this, but, but there are, I think, means of grace or what we at our church call spiritual practices that help us to step into this more fully. Again, I know there's 20 commands, but can I just highlight a few that I think are worth considering? The first is this. Practice showing honor to one another. Did you notice that in the text when he says, what, what verse is it in there? He says in, in verse 10, can we put that up there? Verse 10 of chapter 12, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Compete with one another at showing each other honor. What does it look like to show honor? Did any of you check kids in downstairs to show of hands, anybody check their kids in? I want you to look in the face of the person who's been watching your kids for the last hour and say, you are my hero. <laughs> Bless you. What if, I, I want you to just imagine a culture because I don't know if you've ever been a part of something like this where people were constantly like, I'm gonna show you honor. I wanna outdo you in showing honor. I would just wanna say thank you Ray, for this amazing experience of worship that you led us in. Again, what if, what if honor was the way that we stepped in here? Not our own honor, but seeking to outdo one another in showing honor. Consider that today. The second thing I wanna talk about, spiritual practice that helps us step more fully into this, is the practice of worship. I wanna to talk to you about worship for just a moment. Verse 11 tells us in this passage to not be slothful in zeal, but to be fervent, fervent in spirit. The word fervent doesn't get used enough, I am convinced. The word fervent means to boil over. One translation of verse 11 says this, be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. I grew up in the 90s, okay? So we'd ask each other things like, are you on fire for Jesus? You know what I'm talking about? Am I, am I dating myself? Um, whatever. Are you on fire for Jesus though? What would it look like for a newcomer to walk into our church and, and in, in particular in our moments of worship through singing, 
They said, I don't really know how to describe these people other than fervent in spirit. Which I think, okay, I've been like, I've been involved in worship here for uh, like, we're going on 15 years. So it's a bit of, it's a bit of a time. So I've thought a lot about our, our, us as a worshiping community. Don't you want to be a part of that? Fervent spirit. Don't you want to walk out of this place and be like, that place was on fire with the love of Jesus. There was joy and passion. We let go of the sort of, I don't know, status quo, suburban, I'm okay, you're okay, let's sip coffee coffee at church kind of worship. And said, we were fervent in spirit this morning. What if rather than evaluating the sound or the songs or the band or the singers, you you would simply ask this question, was I boiling over with love for Jesus when I sang to him? Was I curious about the fact that I could worship in such a way that someone who was completely brokenhearted was lifted up by my heart for Jesus? I want to be clear about this. I'm not, we're not talking about legalism. We're not talking about do-betterism or anything like that. What we're talking about is when the love of Jesus captures our hearts so much that we just explode in praise. Don't you want that? Isn't that better than the status quo, worship? Third, I wanna talk about generosity as a spiritual practice. We cannot get away from generosity in this passage. It literally says to contribute to the needs of the saints. Don't you wanna be part of a generous community? My friends, Jameson and Fernando will be out in the foyer. They are our missionaries. They are being sent to Malaysia to to witness to the reality of Jesus. They're going as a family of four, little ones, mom and dad, amazing people. They don't have their fund, they're funding, they're not funded, okay? I don't know how else to say it. I don't say this with any um, shame or anything like that, but we should fund them to do that. If Paul is calling us to contribute to the needs of the saints, we have saints that are heading out on mission for Jesus to a place that is hostile to the gospel? What if a spirit of generosity rose up within us in our worship and they left this day fully funded for their mission to what God has called them to? Generosity helps us build a countercultural community of love. And the final thing that I wanna say, the final practice that I wanna encourage you in is hospitality. Paul says, seek to show hospitality. Here's what hospitality isn't. Hospitality is not like, um, I don't know, like middle class, like barbecue. I don't know how to say, you know what I mean? Like I invited some neat people over to my house, some hospitable. It doesn't actually mean that. In, in the scriptures, what hospitality means would, is to invite strangers into your home and for them to become family. What if hospitality was just so well known in our community. I've been trying really hard to practice hospitality. I'm actually not great at it, okay? Like I get in a a little bit, like I work for Jesus, so sometimes I get into this nine to five mindset, you know what I mean? Like I come home and that's my home. So the Lord was kind enough 
to me, to help to introduce me to this ministry called FCA, which is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And right now in my house, every Friday morning from 7.45 to 8.45, it is full of strange young men, strangers, seventh grade boys. I like, it's, they're destroying my house. I spend hours cleaning it and they spend minutes destroying, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like that. And I, want, I do want to say, this is not like a flex or anything like that, but, but the, the joy that comes, like, like every, every week, every week, I get to tell Excuse me, sorry. Every week I get to tell my son's football team that God loves them. And maybe, maybe, like there's 22 boys in my living room. I think right now four of them are listening to me. <laughs> I'm being, that's like generous. <laughs> like, it's actually a generous thing. I need to wrap this up, but I'm going to keep going for a second, okay? When we open ourselves up to what God has called us to do, the generosity, when we open ourselves up to hospitality, when we open ourselves up to worship, giving, sharing, when we open ourselves up to that, God builds a community of agape love. I'm gonna invite the band up. What I, what I would love to see us do today, and what I would love to encourage you to do today, is to, to take this call that, that comes to us from, from Paul, and I just invite you to open your spirit to God's spirit and say, is there something that you are asking from me today? Not, this isn't legalism, there's no guilt here, none of that. But there may be something that has been holding you back from wholeheartedly engaging in community and I just want to invite you to step deeper into it today. That the love of Christ would be known amongst us, through us, and in us. That we'd boil over fervent in spirit in our worship. That Christ would be made known through the way we love one another. This is what it's all about.